0: All right, well, Hebrews 1 verse 2, it says this maybe. (laughs) Speaking of Jesus, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, the part I want to focus on here is that. also made the worlds again last week we talked about how jesus this is a punch in the face to the jews because the author of hebrews is coming out and saying he is god point blank and it doesn't stop there really this whole chapter is going to be trying to elevate him up to say this isn't just some messiah because there are many messiahs that have been proclaimed to have come but there's really only One true Messiah. And he's saying, this is the one. This is God. And so I want to show you in the Bible that it truly is irrefutable that Jesus is God. Absolutely irrefutable. And so what the author here is doing is taking us back to Genesis 1.1. And there's going to be two options here. Either Jesus is God or Hebrews is just wrong. Those are your only two options that you're going to be left with. So I want you to kind of just remind you too, he isn't bringing a foreign concept here to the Jews. He's using the scriptures, things that these people were very well aware of. And so if we look at John 1.1 as an example here, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. We're all familiar with this verse, and obviously it's talking about the word, and the word was not just with God, but it was God. That's a very important distinction made. Now, the word for word there that's used is logos, basically, and especially if if you look here in Psalm 33, verse 6. Okay, by the word logos, okay, of the Lord, the heavens were made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So again, anybody reading Hebrews in these days would have known Psalm 33 and it's saying by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now John is coming and saying, well, Jesus, Yeshua is that word. Okay, now I know that seems kind of elementary, but I just want you to see as we go how this is going to continue to unfold. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. I think that the author of Colossians understood that there was gonna be some kind of escape device here for people to try and get out of. And so what he does is he throws in that end for him. Which again, may not seem like much, but what happens is the Jews often feel that there's a, that Jesus, okay, they see him as a good prophet or, or a good man or something like that, but not the Messiah. They see him as what, what they call a sheliach, which is a messenger, like an angel. And so, that he was just an agent of God creating. Not the creator, but an agent of creation. Just like God might send an angel to give a message to somebody, God sent Jesus to do this for him. But it doesn't say that. It says that Jesus created for himself. See the difference there? This is removing the possibility that Yeshua could be just an agent or a a messenger. He is God, the creator. Because if you think about it, what makes God, God? I mean, what would make a God, God? A creator, that he created everything. That is the ultimate. There was nothing you created. You are God. I mean, that is the ultimate of proofs that you are God is that you created everything. And so that's what he's doing here. So that, and again, when he says for himself, he again isn't using foreign concepts here. He's using the Old Testament. Because that's exactly what the Old Testament says in Proverbs 16 4 here. The Lord has made all for himself. So when Colossians is saying that, Yeshua, Jesus, made everything for Himself, they would have gone back. They would have known Proverbs. They would have known. He's saying He's God because God made everything for Himself. Make sense? How about for the forgiveness of sins? Just a couple of other examples here in Scripture Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases? Who can forgive sins? Only one person, God. And yet, in Luke 5.20, we see it's bold enough to report, When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus proclaims to be able to forgive sins, and I think you guys know your New Testament well enough that this is what upsets the Jews so much. They're so upset. And Jesus says, well, what's harder to do? To, to you know, heal somebody or to say your sins are forgiven, but so that you know that I have power to forgive sins, that I am God, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy is healed and he's able to walk off, saying, if I can heal, I can forgive sins. I am God. And with that, they're thinking, Blasphemy. So it is a very big thing to be claiming these types of things. We have here that only God can blot out sins. When we go to Exodus 32, 31, we see that the Israelites had uh, sinned greatly and Moses goes up the mountain. God is angry with them because he's saying, I have been patient. They've done nothing but disobey me. And it says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin, and they have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Okay, now, again, Moses, as a Christ figure, says, Lord, no, blot me out, which is just incredible to me. Uh You want to have a love that is a biblical example, a love for people? I'll tell you, I don't have it, but that's what I desire. This isn't unusual either. Paul, remember Paul himself in Romans says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. We're not talking, you know, just getting a spanking. We're talking hell. That I could wish that I was cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own brothers, the people of Israel that is love. Moses did the same thing. Jesus did the same thing. Right? He said, "Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do." That the enemies they were willing to give their own life, their own salvation for the sake of their enemies because I don't know if you remember the story of the golden calf, Moses. Unbelievable. These guys have done nothing but complain about him. They've done nothing but pick on him. Nothing but uh, complain to him and disobey not only him, but God's word. And then God says, I'm going to wipe you out. I'll tell you, honestly, if it was me, I'd probably be, oh, thank you. Finally, God, for stepping in and avenging me. Thank you for being the guy that, you know, that I know you are, that you're going to protect me and that you're watching out for me. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, Lord, uh, take me. That is incredible to me. But that's the context of what's going on here. But back to the point at hand, he's saying, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out. Now, by the way, when he says my book, he's talking about that book of life. And we see that in Revelation 3, 5 here. It says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not, or I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels so if you look here in revelation 3 5 we see that this is jesus saying that he is not going to be blotting out the name okay because it says i will confess his name before my father that tells us this is yeshua jesus talking not god the father so in the old testament god's the one that blots it out here in the new jesus but he says i will not blot it he is just like moses saying no i will do it and that's what yeshua did for us on the cross is he took all of our sins all of what we deserve just like those israelites deserved death and he took it for us so that our name would not be blotted out so who can blot out sins only one and that's god How about Jeremiah 17, verse 10? Who knows the heart of man? It says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Okay, it's the Lord that searches the heart. It's the Lord that knows our thoughts, the number of our hairs on our head. And yet, in Revelation 2.18, it says, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your words or your works. I am he who searches the mind and hearts. So again, he is God. How about being unchangeable? Again, any Jew would have known Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. God is unchangeable. And yet Hebrews, as we're going to see later in chapter 13, says Jesus Christ Is the same yesterday, today, and always. I, the Lord, do not change. So, claiming to be God. We can look here in Psalm 146, verse 8, about healing. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises those who are bowed down. Now, this is very important here because it also talks about that in reference to the Messiah and being God and whatnot, that he would heal. In Matthew 9, we, we see, and we could look at a couple of examples here, but there were two blind men that followed Jesus crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Looking for that faith again. They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you or be to you and their eyes were opened so right here we see the eyes of the blind are opened which may seem well just a miracle somebody did a miracle but this wasn't just any miracle this was a miracle that was proclaiming the messiahship ultimately when he says do you believe that I am able to do this you you could almost rephrase that question do you believe I'm God and they say yeah I do you remember John the Baptist, and I can relate to this very well. John the Baptist had gone through his ministry and baptizing and doing all of these things, and then Herod arrests him, puts him in prison. And Jesus is out there and John sends some of his disciples to meet Jesus and says, "Are you the one?" John wants to know, "Are you the one or are we are we should should we expect somebody else?" And I don't know about your life, but I know in my life God never says yes or no. It's usually some roundabout thing. You know, I don't know why he couldn't have just said, yeah, tell John I'm he. I'm the one. But he doesn't. He says, you go tell John the blind see, the deaf hear. And I'm like, well, what kind of answer is that? Well, because they knew their Old Testament. They knew that the only one that was going to be able to do that, because do you remember when the... The one blind man was healed. He goes before the Pharisees and the scribes. And he said, no one has ever heard of such a thing happening. This didn't happen. You don't find this happening because this was reserved for the Messiah, God. And so what the answer that Jesus gave these disciples was, was you go tell John these scripture verses. Because what you see is that those scripture verses were talking about me. So I must be him. He was saying yes, but he was using the word of God. To say yes, what do you got? You got one man's word. But to use the scriptures, now we have the scriptures saying the answer, giving you the answer. I can't tell you how many times in my ministry I have had those same questions and concerns that John has. Lord, am I on the right track? Because I'll tell you what, there seems to be a lot of persecution, a lot of people going against me, a lot of things that just don't seem to be making sense. And what happens? I I don't get an answer. Yes, you're, you're right. Keep going. But what I do get is the Word. And the Word says, yes. This is truth. Because I can't follow my heart. I can't follow my church my culture, my family, I can only follow the word. And the word says, yes, that's what Jesus did for John. Took him to the word. He controls the weather. Who controls it? God, really. If we look in Psalm 89, 8, it says, The Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. So, obviously, in Matthew chapter 8, we see, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. Then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. I think that was a rhetorical question. I think they knew because they would have known Psalm 89. And so that's why they're like, who is this is? But again, they couldn't figure out the details. They couldn't understand all of it. They knew only God can calm the storms. Only God can control the weather. But this is God? I think they were still trying to figure this out. Later we see Peter says, you know, who, who do you think I am? You are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You are God. There were aspects that they weren't quite putting together. But believe me, later, especially after the spirit was given, they understood fully he's God. Enough to where they were willing to give their lives to go share this truth. So, these aren't just miracles that are taking place in the New Testament. These are confessions of Yeshua to be Yahweh, God. That's what's happening. John five twenty six: For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So, When Jesus was proclaiming things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, again, it wasn't just proclaiming some doctrinal statement for us as far as, you know, if you want life and you want it abundantly, follow me. He was claiming to be God. John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is saying, my kingdom? Wait a minute. Any Jew would have been saying, whoa, 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 your kingdom. No, 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 that's God's kingdom. (coughs) Yeah, I know. My kingdom, he says. Same thing in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not talking about all these other little things he said because, well, I mean, he is in a sense. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about God's law, the Torah. That's what he's talking about. And... Now Jesus is saying they're his. If you love me, you're going to follow these. Now that's huge. okay? That's huge and something that today in our churches is not really being taught. That these are Jesus' commands. You see, we have the Old Testament God's commands and we have the New Testament, oh, the love, love Jesus loves. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, the old is mine. That's me. Okay? And we'll talk more about that. That has nothing to do with uh, trying to put people under the law or anything like that, but it's putting people under Jesus. Okay? We are under Jesus, and Hebrews is going to get into that later. But remember that it's not two separate things. You don't have an old and a new, you have the Bible. And I hope that's what you're seeing. That's kind of my goal here is for you to see that, that we don't have this separation. We have a book. And every bit of it is about Yeshua Jesus. Okay? John 5, 22. Who can judge sins? I remember years ago, there was a, maybe my wife can help me, some, talk show host that we'd listen to Dr. Laura she was a Jew and I remember you know people would call in and they would say something and they would say like well you know they did this they did that but I forgive them and she would say nobody can forgive but God it was just it was irritating to her for people to say that I forgive them because as a Jew you know only one person can forgive. God could for, can forgive sins alone. Well, here in John 5:22, moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. But he's saying, "Whoa, the Father judges no one. He has entrusted it to me." That would have been very offensive. Is offensive to somebody like Dr. Laura. Psalm 96 says this, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. How does He judge it? In righteousness. There's a lot that we could talk about here. I mean, one of the most quoted verses today in society is what? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? Pluck out that thing out of your eye before you. Everybody tells you we're not supposed to judge sin. There couldn't be anything more unbiblical. Go look in context. In John, he says that we are to judge righteously. Okay, all of us are sinners. All of us screw up, but we have a responsibility to hold one another accountable for sin. Period. Okay? So, when God judges, he judges righteously. Well, who is Yeshua Jesus? He is the very essence, the very manifestation of righteousness. And yet, that's how God judges. It makes sense, then, that he would entrust judgment to the Son. Tell you what, I'm sure glad that it's him that is judging me because he is like Christ's figure going back to Moses when he says to Moses, you know, I'm going to blot him out. And he says, no, 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 no. I'll do that for you. And so it's Christ's righteousness, him stepping in for us, that keeps the wrath of God from coming upon us. Ultimately. Ultimately. Now, we'll move on from that one. Like I could stay there a long time, but again, the writer of Hebrews knows how important this is, and this is why he's starting this way, and this is why I'm kind of taking so much time in these first few verses. Um, Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So every knee is going to bow before God. He says, there is no other. You are to worship me and you are to worship me only. Which is why it's such a shock in Philippians 2.9, therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given Jesus the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Yeshua, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Yeshua, Hamashiach, is Lord. Now, some of you might be saying, Why is he saying Yeshua? Why is he saying that thing? Are you trying to be a Jew? Or are you trying? No, I want you to understand something. Yeshua means something. You know what it means? The Lord saves. Yah, God. Shua, salvation. God saves. That's the very essence of his name, is the Lord saves. Okay? And so there's a point to that. So anyway, here we're seeing that the nobody—you don't worship anybody but God. It would be very offensive, and yet now Jesus is being worshipped, and we're told to worship Him. When Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, uh, by one of the teachers of the law, He gives an answer, and. What I find interesting is there's a kind of a hidden spiritual formula here that is going to sum up all of Scripture in just one itty-bitty little tiny phrase. Kind of like, you know, the, help me again, wife. Aladdin, (laughs) Aladdin, thank you. Okay. You know, all this power, all of Scripture in one itty-bitty little phrase. Okay. Okay. He says this, Jesus answered him, uh, first here in Mark, I guess, 12, 29. Jesus answered them, first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, but then he goes on and he's quoting, voila, the Old Testament again. Something that apparently is old and not for us. No, he's quoting Deuteronomy, one of these legalistic, Chapters and books of the Bible that all are about Jesus. He says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And then he goes on and says, The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, In asking, what is the greatest, if you could boil it all down, what's the most important thing that you could do? He says, love God above all else, with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God, love your neighbor. I know that's not very deep, but what I want you to see is this isn't very deep. (laughs) Okay? That formula is seen in other ways a number of times throughout scripture. I'm just going to show you a few, but watch for this as you look at the scriptures. Okay, Number one, we confess and love God. Two, love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's look at that here. In Luke 10, we see something very similar happen. It is a different story. In one case, Jesus is asked the question. In the other case, Jesus is asking the question. But in both cases, to scribes, people who were experts in the law. Okay? Here in Luke 10, it says, He said to him, What is written in the law? This time, the scribe is asked, What must I do to have eternal life? Okay, what must you do? The answer, He says, What is written in the law? What's your reading of it? And He says, So he, the scribe, answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Okay? You recall another guy came and said, what must I do to be saved? And he says, you know, go do this. And and what ends up happening is he he says he goes away sad because Jesus says, go sell all the things that you have. And he went away sad because he was rich. He had a lot to give. I'm going to come back to that. But let me just show you one other example. Same formula here, almost identical. But here's a couple of other ways where we see that formula in Scripture but maybe he kind of boiled down a little differently. 1 John 3, 23. And in this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's the same thing. Love God, believe in him, and then love your neighbor. How about Ephesians 1:15? Therefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. You see that little formula kind of hidden almost in there? When he hears about our faith, our belief and love for Jesus, and your love for the saints, your love for your neighbor. That's how simple this is. The problem is, is I think that in many cases, I don't think we know what it means to love God. What's it mean to love God? What do you guys think? Be thankful. Be thankful. Okay. Honor Honor Him. How do we honor Him? Yeah. Exactly. Abide in His law. Now, again, I can already hear legalism, legalism. Really? Jesus said this. Jesus said, If you love me, you will do what I say. That's the scripture. That's not me. That's not legalism. It's not even really Old Testament, although it kind of is, because that's just what he's you know, quoting. You see, if we love somebody, we obey them. Now, this is going to be the big thing Hebrews is going to be pointing out. Guys, If we obey God, are we legalists? Maybe. It's possible. But it's also possible not. You see, what Hebrews, and this will become more clear as we go, what Hebrews is saying is we can love out of obligation, or I should say obey out of obligation, or we can obey out of love. There's two ways. Now, if I'm going to obey out of obligation, it really isn't love, and it, probably, it is legalism. If I have to do it, I'm under the law. If I want to do it, you know, I guess I'm obeying the law, but I'm not under that law. And we're gonna, like I said, we're going to talk in great depth because Hebrews is going to point this out. But for now, I just want you to see that. What's it mean to love God, to obey him? Now, I know we can get into all kinds of things. Well, what's it mean to obey him? Well, we'll let the scriptures tell us that, okay? But today, I would say 99.9% of churches have an idea. All you've got to do is believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, call on the name of Jesus, you're going to be saved. We just take those one little isolated verses and and we, we make that, you know, what it is. Belief doesn't save anybody. The devil believes in God. And shudders. Okay? There are I believe every demon in hell believes in God. But you know what they don't do? They don't obey him. Okay? What what was the difference of Satan being in heaven or being cast out of heaven? Obeying him. Now again. I know. I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to get so tired of me kind of screaming, you know, I know legalism, legal. Okay. But I have to because this is a society we live in. Okay. It's the church that we live in that if we obey God, we're legalists. Uh, you remember Ezekiel 43, it says this show the temple to the people of Israel, okay, that they may be ashamed of their sins. I think in Israel I talked about this. He says, if. They are sorry. If they repent of all that they have done, then make known to them the whole design of the temple, its entrances, its exits, its, entrance, uh, its, uh, its whole design. But what I want to point out is this, is reveal the temple, show the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. When I think of the temple back in the Old Testament times, I think of one thing, sacrifices day in and day out, and that now that's all gone. But Ezekiel 43 isn't talking about any of those temples. It's talking about a new temple that's coming. Okay? We'll talk about that later in great detail. But what I want you to see is this another purpose of the temple was so that the onlookers outside of the temple would feel ashamed. I've experienced that in my own life. I, I see people that walk a holier life than mine. Love Jesus. They're saved. I'm saved. I love Jesus. It has nothing to do with salvation. I'm not talking about that. I know where I'm going. I'm going to be with the Lord. Period. Thank you, Jesus. But I know these people who their walk with God, they do it better than I do. And sometimes I don't like to be around them. Because I feel ashamed. I feel like I'm not living up to what I should be. Guys, remember what the temple is? When Yeshua came and Hebrews is going to talk about this, you're the temple. So when it's talking about this temple in Ezekiel 43, and he says, show the temple to the people of Israel, so that they'll be ashamed of their sins. It means something. You guys in the way you live your life should make other people feel ashamed of the way they live theirs. Does it? Okay, again, I'm not talking about salvation, somebody being more saved than somebody else. We're not talking about that. We're talking about walking in holiness. Because that's what it says we're to do. By the way, Romans says this exact same thing as far as when it talks about Jews and Gentiles. And it says that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until, that's not permanent, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. He goes on and he says that God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he have, may have mercy on them all. And as you go and look at that, I think, it is it Romans 10? If you go look at that, you're going to see that he says, the Jews, they had it. They had it. They had the answers. They had God. They had the temple. And the Gentiles, they were off over here. They didn't have it. And then Yeshua comes, and he breaks down this wall of separation, and he welcomes the Gentiles in, Acts chapter 10 and Acts 15. The Gentiles are welcomed in. The Jews are shocked by it. We'll talk more about this later. They're amazed that the Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles start growing faster than the Jews do, and now they start boasting over the branches, and now the church is a very Gentile church. And now we've got this Gentile church. they got it. They've got Yeshua. They've got Jesus. They've got salvation. And the Jews are over here on the side, and they're they're away from it things have flip-flopped completely now it is available for all but what I'm saying is if you go read that that's what it's saying in Romans it has flip-flopped but he says why here's what's supposed to happen you see the Jews were supposed to make us jealous we were supposed to look at the temple of God be ashamed of our sins and say we want that God Now it's flip flopped, and we are to be that temple that the Jews are supposed to be looking at and saying, I want that God. I want Yeshua. Okay? That's what's supposed to happen. But the way the church lives our lives, you're not reflecting Yeshua to them, not accurately. As I said last time, we sometimes present a Gentile God, a God that has gotten rid of the Old Testament. That's not about Yeshua. Let me just tell you about Jesus right now. And they don't hear it. But we're supposed to be that temple that makes them yearn for God's salvation, Yeshua. So anyway, this formula is there. To love God means to obey Him. And we'll talk more about that, but I just want you to understand that. That's the New Testament. Those are Jesus' own words. If you love me, you will do. And it's not just that. It's James. James says faith without works is dead. Right? But we have become so accustomed to yelling, legalism, oh no, don't you dare tell me that I should obey God. That's legalism. We become so accustomed to that in the churches that we can't even talk about it anymore because you're a legalist. Like I said, uh, Hebrews is going to talk about it. I don't need to. Hebrews will talk about this. Let's get to verse 3. Yeah, I know. I promise we are going to go faster. This is just, yeah, go ahead. yeah um, I had a note on that the Greek word and I don't remember what the Greek word is all in all but it is everything basically to entail everything but I I thought it might you might have even seen it up there but maybe not I can't remember but it should does be world, but should be plural? it should be plural or universe but You know, we kind of think worlds like maybe this planet and that planet, but it it entails all the substance of everything that's there. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, verse 3, again, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He's talking about Yeshua Jesus here, and he's saying that Jesus is two things primarily here. The express image of his person and the brightness of his glory. The word "express image" here, brightness—the the brightness of his glory. The glory of God is incomprehensible to us. I, um, I, I like to tell people that sometimes, you know, I. It's like God, show us your glory. I, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't handle it, not in the flesh. You know, even Moses, when he prays that, he says, God, you know, show me your glory. I don't think he understands what he's saying, but he comes down the mountain, and it was so bright that Moses' face was glowing, right? The people couldn't even look at him. Now, we'll talk more about that later. But what I want you to see is that light is not his glory. That is the result of his glory, that is the effect of his glory his pureness he is light because he is glory all right i don't mean to get too philosophical here but just it's not the light and when we pray lord show us your glory we're not looking for light we're looking for holiness pureness That's what it is. And that's why we can't be in the presence of that because we have sinful flesh and that sin, something that is corruptible, can't be in the presence of something that is so pure, so perfect, so beyond our words to explain. Okay? But when it says the express image, you can see the Greek there. It is literally like... A mold. That's what the Greek word can be used for at times. An exact representation of. Okay, not a shaliach, not a messenger, but Jesus is the exact, okay, the exact likeness of his person. And the word person there is substance. Okay, so it's not just like a copy of but it is an exact substance. So even what he's saying here, he's not saying, all right, it's like God and then making a mold of God. That word person in there is saying it is the exact substance of God. So a Jew reading this in Hebrews, verse 3, would not miss the fact that he's saying he's God. Not a model of it not another mode of God and we'll talk about that here in just a minute it goes on and it says and upholding all things by the word of his power i love that how does he uphold things how does he hold this universe together by his word the word is so so powerful guys that's why i say you know, I, I was talking to Pastor Sean today and, and uh, Josiah and Abby invited us to church there today. And he came out and I, I wanted to stand up and applaud before he even began his sermon. He was talking about people coming into his office and, and you know, needing counsel and this and that. And he said, I can't give you. He says, I'm just as sinful as you are. You don't need me. You don't need a three-step program or a five-step program. You don't need a self-help book. He says, "All I can do is point you to the word because that's where the power is at. You won't find it in yourself." Okay? Good luck with that looking for it in yourself. It can only be found in the word. He is the word of his power. And so I just love that. I, just, I don't think the church understands the power of God's word. That's how he created everything. He spoke it into existence. In science camp, sometimes we use this off track here, but I just love this. It's called somatics, the study of sound waves. And I take a plate and you stick it on this speaker, a metal plate, just a flat plate, and I take salt and I just sprinkle salt or sand on it. And I turn that speaker on to sounds, and instantly shapes come about. Things that look like DNA or tic-tac-toe or or just instant, boom. And as I change the tune, just whoo, it's a shape, 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 shape. Amazing. I am not saying that this is how God did it, but I picture it this way somewhat. That we know that those sounds are making shape. Now again, Satan always tries to corrupt things, and he does a great job of it. You can go and buy DNA healing CDs. I, I'm probably dating myself. I know I don't know what they are. M Spot- podcast, Spotify, whatever. I'm sure it's on Spotify. Okay, you can go buy these things that you're supposed to listen to in that. Particular frequency is supposed to heal your DNA and all that kind of stuff, okay? The New Age has just twisted all of this. So don't go there. What I'm saying is this. I can picture God going, okay, (laughs) and things are forming, boom, boom, shapes coming together by the power of his word. I love that. I mean... That's the kind of thing that we have in his word and yet we treat it as if it's just another book. Throw it around, put it on the shelf to collect dust, do whatever. But guys, there is a power in that that as I read this scripture, as we go through this Bible study and and, and you're going to see I'm just giving you scripture, 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 scripture. Those verses are working in your heart and in your life in ways that I can't. I can't you know, describe it and lay it out for you. God will, in his spirit, use that to prick a conscience, to give you encouragement, to, to do something that I can't do. But we just have to be in that word. Anyway, Hebrews 1.3 goes on and it says, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That sitting down again is huge. And we're going to see this again later when, we, when Hebrews starts to compare him to be this high priest, the great high priest. Uh, King Gibber is here. I told him here we butchered lambs for the Seder meals. And I told him, I said, if you start prophesying, I'm going to have to like excommunicate you out of the church because we call him King Gibber, okay? And he was now priestly duty of slaughtering the lamb. And I said, now... If he's a priest, a king, and a prophet, we're in trouble because only, only God can be that. Okay, He is our priest, our king, our prophet. And, and Hebrews is going to do a great job of laying that out later. But anyway, a priest would never sit down. There were no chairs in the temple of God, in the tabernacle or the temple. They were there to work. But Jesus, and we'll talk about this later too, you're going to get tired of me saying that, but there's so much coming up and I'm only on verse 3. So, he sits down because it is finished. The work of salvation has been completed in him. And so he can sit down. Those high priests, they never could sit down because it was never, ever done. Okay, Revelation 3 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Not stand, but to sit with him on his throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I love that verse because I don't know about you guys, but I'm tired. And I, I really am excited to get to Hebrews chapter 11. I know that might seem like you know four years from now, at the rate we're going... <laughs> It'll go a little faster. But I love that in studying it out because, guys, I'm tired. I'm tired of the fight. And there are times I need that encouragement to say, no, I I will not grow weary and tired. But I will fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. And I'm going to keep going to run the race and I look forward to the day where I get to sit down just like he sat down. This is a short lifetime compared to eternity. I like to when we evangelize out on the street, ask people, what do you hope to be doing in five years? They always have an answer. What do you hope to be doing in 10 years? What do you hope to be doing in 25 years? How about 150 years? How about 250 years? 600 years, a million years from now. Because you see, guys, we are putting so much effort in in our heart and our life into this little tiny period of history, our life. But what we should be doing is preparing for the eternity of time to come. We prepare our kids and everything's so important to make sure they graduate college and they get a good job. You know what's so much more important? What are they going to be doing for an eternity? Teaching them the the Word of God that they know it. There's a song. I don't know how theologically accurate it is, but I kind of like it. I don't even know the title or who sings it, but something about sending lumber ahead. Wife, you know what I'm talking about? Got nothing. nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But the bottom line is this, is these people get to heaven and they see these big mansions and small mansions and they go and they come and and he just has this little house and he says, why this little house? And he says, that's all the lumber you sent. Okay, guys, there are salvation. I'm saved, you're saved. If you know Jesus Christ, salvation is there. But you know what? There are degrees of glory. There is also degrees of punishment. In my book on Revelation, I talk about that. The, the scriptures are very clear. Some will be beaten with many blows, some with few blows. Likewise, in heaven, yes, there's a prize, but there are rewards given. Now, what do you think that's for? How many cars you owned? How many jokes you told? How many friends you had? No, I think it's how we walk our life. Okay? Because we are storing up. Now, my good works aren't mine either, by the way. I know they belong to God. I can do nothing good lives in me. But I know that I can do all things through Christ. And that we will lay our crowns down before the throne of God in heaven. That our works are His. But I do know the scriptures are clear about their glories. And that means that I can be a saved Christian who will one day get to sit down. No question about it. But, even though we all get to sit down, those who have walked in obedience and love for the Lord, following, Daniel says the same thing, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Okay? When we are living out our purpose here on life, You are sending lumber. You're sending lumber up to heaven. I don't think it's going to be our true mansion or anything like that, but you you understand the point. And so even though we all get to sit, I, I, I think that there's more to it than that. I think that we should be running the race, not just to get through the race, but with a goal in mind to serve our Lord Jesus, okay, and to do it well. I, I, I think the greatest words that I can, I, I will long to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I love that. Anyway, i got to get back here. My thing closed out on me. Um. Revelation 22.1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice here in Revelation, it's not saying it's just God's throne. It's the Lamb's throne as well. In other words, God is the Lamb. Okay, Same kind of thing that we've been talking about here. Continuing in verse 4, that's right. It says this. Having become so much better than the angels, he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What's happening here, again, Hebrews is going back to the Old Testament. He's quoting two psalms here, Psalm 2 and Psalm 17, and he's putting them together. And um, basically what we see, one of the contexts of, of Psalm uh, is that David and his son Solomon, he's, you know, they're speaking about David and Solomon, but it's so much more than that. And that's what Hebrews is saying is, you thought that was just David and Solomon. No, it's so much more. It is about the Messiah. And so Solomon's life is an incredible parallel. We often hear about David being a Christ figure, Joseph being a Christ figure. So is Solomon. And that's a whole other message, but it is really a fascinating one to look into. One, we see that Solomon rides in uh, to be coronated on a donkey into Jerusalem. He is not just coronated once, he is coronated twice we don't see that with other people but he is coronated two times just like Yeshua Jesus is coming twice there's two coronations Okay, uh, Solomon had a great white throne we see Solomon had twelve governors or rulers that basically would provide for him we see the twelve apostles and, and things like that as well and, and many many other examples of that but anyway Psalm 2 and Psalm 17 here, he's basically saying, first of all, Yeshua Jesus is better than the angels. Okay? I would think that if you would go to somebody and say, all right, you got an angel and you got Bob and you got Joe here, angel is going to be up there. And so he's even saying that Yeshua Jesus is above that. So, just another, you know, highlight, I guess. But anyway, you are my son. Today I have become, or I have begotten you. Now, that's hard for us to understand this whole begotten kind of aspect, you know, the only begotten son. But I don't think we're ever going to be able to wrap our minds around it. But it wasn't like You know, David being, or Solomon being born to David, obviously. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about that for now. But let's go to verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn unto the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Again, we talked about only one person being worthy of worship. Even the angels in the book of Revelation, when John goes down, he says, whoa, don't worship me, worship God only. Okay, Angels will not receive worship unless it's a fallen angel like the devil who wants it. Okay, And by the way, the devil is in the churches. He disguises himself as an angel of light all the time. And one of the most important things for him is worship. He wants your worship. Worship. Guys, I want you to understand, worship is not just singing songs. Worship is how you live your life. Worship is all of it. Okay? And so when we disobey God and we walk in disobedience, you are worshiping the devil. We all worship somebody. Okay? You either worship God or you worship the devil, but there is no in-between because there's right and there's wrong. If you're not doing right, you're doing wrong. And that's what the devil wants. He wants that worship. So we all worship. An atheist worships. Okay? Um, Today, even in our modern era, there is a, uh, a modern heresy that goes way back to the time of the third century called Arianism. I think I had mentioned Arian before last week and um, I'm gonna kinda give you a little bit of an understanding of what that was. I do want you to know that the Nicene Council, you know where we get the Nicene Creed from, that Nicene Council met primarily to address Arianism. That was the number one issue, okay? What is Arianism? It's this guy right here. And what he was saying is that Jesus, Yeshua, was not eternal. He was a created being. Now, by the way, there would be a lot of denominations today that have that. Okay? If you don't believe Jesus is God, then you would believe that he's a created being. Right? Islam, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and honestly, a lot of there's more and more Christian churches that are beginning to say this. Okay, um, let me just show you kind of what he says here. Uh, he did have a lofty view of of Jesus. Okay, it wasn't like oh I don't respect him or have any good to say he had a very lofty he just said he's not eternal okay and so Arius himself was responding to another her, her, uh, heresy of that day called modalism that basically Jesus was just kind of in a mode of the father That there were just different modes of God and so he was trying to address that in what he's saying here. He, it's just that his answer was wrong and skewed as well. And um, anyway, he says this, We know one God alone, unbegotten. The Son, begotten by the Father, is created and was not before he was begotten. He was not always there. He was created by God. He goes on. Now but, no, he doesn't go on yet. This is Alexander of Alexandria, which by the way, Arius was also from Alexandria. So these guys are basically from the same town. But what happens is Alexander tries to uh, answer Arius. and this is basically what he says. Uh, kind of hard to understand. I might just leave it up here and just tell you. He's saying, this is so ridiculous, so crazy, nobody's going to believe it. I don't even really have to do anything. We should just let it go because nobody's going to buy this. Because he obviously understood that the scriptures were saying, no, Jesus is eternal. He is God. And But he's just saying, you know, the highlights here. Uh, I was desirous to to pass such a matter by without notice. I was just going to ignore it, okay? In the hope that perhaps the evil would spend itself among its supporters. It would just die out. And he goes on and he says, The novelties they have invented and put forth, contrary to the scriptures, are these. And he goes on to say what Arianism teaches. God was not always a father. The word of God was not always but originated from things that were not. For God, that is, has made him, made Jesus, that was not of that which was not. Wherefore, there was a time when he, Jesus, was not. Aren't you glad we don't write like this anymore? (laughs) But I think you get the point here. He goes on and he says that neither is he his true wisdom, but he is one of the things made and created. Hey, so this, to be honest with you, is being revived a little bit today. Um, in some churches, Christian churches, as well as some what would be called Messianic churches as well, where they're denying the Godhead of Yeshua Jesus. What would they show as evidence to support that? You know, that is a good question, and I don't know outside of the fact that one of the big things we hear is that God is one. God is one. And they go back to that the Lord our God is one. But even Jesus says that. I and the Father are one. I don't think we can wrap our minds around the Trinity, but it's that idea of the Trinity that just, we feel like we have to have an understanding of it before we can believe it. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot that I don't understand, but I believe it's true. Not just the Trinity. I believe in love. Can't measure it. Can't taste it. Can't see it. <clears throat> you see the results of it, <clears throat> but we can't uh, make love. You know, or you know what I mean. <laughs> I saw the smirk.
1: <laughs>
0: it's it's not. <laughs> yeah, the the science aspects of it. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, um, but that is what is an idea that's out there. And this was, even at the time uh, that Hebrews is being written, was something that was being discussed and talked about. Arian kind of came up with it and ran with it even more. But again, this is kind of what the Jews were saying, is that he's not created, he's not God. And Hebrews is addressing this very thing, you know, head on. Uh, Matthew or Hebrews 1.6 says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. That, that firstborn is what's important. In no way is this saying that Jesus was created. Okay? You, you, you can only worship God and God alone. So if Jesus is being worshiped, he's saying God is, Jesus is God himself. We've kind of covered that. But this idea of firstborn is a compound word. uh, You can see the two Greek words there. First, for the firstborn, it's like the most important or the preeminent. To beget is a second word, to bring forth. And so it's not like you and I would think the firstborn of our oldest child. It is the aspect of being the most important to bring forth the preeminent, to bring forth the most important. Okay? He is the firstborn, the most important. You could look at it that way. So, Scripture is like he the firstborn among the dead, firstborn of creation, it talks about. Okay? Um, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about him coming into existence. All right. Exodus 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Speaking of idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Okay, again, the writer of Hebrews is making a big point here that. As always, Jesus is God. Servants are angels. And in Exodus 20, it says you don't serve false gods, false angels, false idols, false demons. Okay? In John 18 here, though, it says that we see these angels, these servants, will fight for Jesus in his kingdom. It says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And so, either Jesus is God or all the Bible is corrupt, ultimately. Boy, this thing is just being terrible here tonight. Um, Colossians 1.15, again, Just to we've looked at this before, but he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So, Maybe that's kind of the the type of verses that they use to try and say that he was created. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So therefore we can see that he is before all things, so if he's the creator, he can't be a firstborn, like something that comes about at creation, if he's before creation. okay. But that word firstborn can be confusing for some people because of that. Revelation 1.4 says, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So he is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the beginning and the end. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and is to, a, is to come. He says it a second time there in Revelation 1, 4 and following. So god is the one that who is and who was and who is to come Jesus is the one who is who was who is to come we see the same type of thing happening there I gotta try this one more time my notes just won't show up so I think with that since I can't get this to work I'm gonna call that quits I have like three slides as all anyway to go um, I almost, with those three slides, we were going to cruise through some other verses, but uh, we'll pick up at verse 7 next week. Um, Actually, next week I will not be here. Uh, That's the one that I can't in March, but I think the rest of them in March will will be good. So we'll uh, give you a break for next week. Um, Any thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? All right. Well, thank you guys for coming. I appreciate that. We'll close in prayer and just please feel free to stick around and visit or do whatever you'd like here. Heavenly Father, we just again are grateful for your word, for the very fact that you are God. Lord, we confess that, that you are God and there is no other. We are thankful that uh, your presence is here tonight and we just pray that as we go home that you would keep us safe as always, but that we would take this word with us, that we would meditate upon this very important fact that you are God and we are not, that your word is what we should follow, not ours, not our heart that is deceitful and wicked and beyond cure, but that it is your word, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, your word that dwells in us, your word that we have in front of us, that we should search it and seek what it says, that we would let the power of that word change us. And, that we would be uh, a temple that would bring shame to those, not in a negative way, but in a good way to, to, to cause them to desire you. And so teach us now as we leave and meditate upon what we've learned tonight. In your holy name, the name of Yeshua, amen.